This episode is brought to you by the Christian Culture Builders Group on Facebook and MeWe. Believers in Jesus optimistically working to create great commission hubs for the propagation of the gospel, the furthering of Christ's kingdom, and the emergence of robust, fruitful Christian culture. We work through the three spheres of authority, the family, the church, and the state, and the pillars of influence in society to make it happen. Check out the Christian Culture Builders Group on Facebook or MeWe today. excited to get into uh, the uh, talk we got today because I know anytime I get a chance to do Q&A with folks that are asking questions from the church, I'm happy. So uh, I, I feel like that's uh, where you and I are at our sweetest when we're answering specific questions of folks from the church trying to figure out how to do uh, and see the Bible clearly through a lot of the, the kind of junk that's in the forest right now. Right, right. So important right now. Um, so, okay, how's my sound sounding? I think that's better. Okay, good, good, good. So let me tell you why I have to give some cooking advice. So this morning, um, we sit down for breakfast as we are wont to do as a family, and uh, we've got our bagels. And then I'm thinking, so I'm, look, Rafe, I'm trying to eat healthier. Uh, you, you know, I'm I'm trying to make sure that my body gets what it needs. So I'm trying to eat. I'm trying to make sure I eat protein at every meal. You know, protein's important. Um, builds muscle mass, and uh, you know, good for the. Uh, I don't know. It's protein. It's good for you. So. People don't watch this show for nutritional advice. They, they watch it for worldview thinking. Um, but this morning, I'm like, you know, I, I think I'm going to make some bacon. My wife is like, no, nah, just, just make some eggs. You know, why not just make some eggs? And I thought, no, nah, I, I really want some bacon. So what I do is I, we've been baking our bacon lately. And um, it's a little, if you never bake bacon, it's great. Less cleanup. You just line a cookie sheet with some aluminum foil and you put the bacon right in there. And I look at... Normally, when we bake our bacon, we put it in there for 350, bake it for, I don't know, 10 minutes, five minutes, whatever it is, but you know, you're watching it and everything is fine. But I look at the instructions on this bacon, Rafe, and it has instructions on there on how to bake it in the oven. Here's what it says. Put your, set your oven on broil and then place the bacon three inches away from the heat. So I'm like, Did did all the grease catch on fire? So, well, (laughs) listen. I'll tell you what happened. I'll give you the long and short of it. I, I put it in there and I, I check it after. Um, and they do say, they they to be fair, they say cook it for three or four minutes and then flip it. And I'm like, I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to cook it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to watch it. So I set my timer for three minutes. I look at it. Uh, still needs a little more time. Alisa likes it nice and crispy. I look at it again three minutes later. Eh, maybe, maybe a couple more minutes. Then I look. Rafe, the next time I looked, Smoke is pouring out of our fridge. <laughs> I mean, our, our oven. Oh, if you're oven. I'm like, how'd the fridge get involved? Not the in fridge, this? not the fridge, not the fridge. But but I look inside, and sure enough, the bacon had caught fire. It was flaming. And um, I thought, well, you know, best thing to do right now is just turn off the heat, turn everything off, leave the door shut so that the flames don't spread. But um, but then at, at uh, within a couple of minutes, Rafe, Smoke is now pouring out of the oven. It's literally <laughs> filling up our kitchen. It uh, it was like something out of like um, a bad <laughs> Chevy Chase movie from the eighties. Um, stuff is just is is the, the house is filling up with smoke. So I'm like, all right, well, no problem. We'll just get our um, fire extinguisher. Well, it turns out, you know, we just moved into this house. There is no fire extinguisher. So now we're like, so Lisa's like, well, throw some flour on it. The flour we learned this recently. Um, at her house, her her parents' house, flour is actually not good for a fire. It actually turns out flour is one of the worst things you can throw on a fire. So I'm like, we're not going to do that. Um, and I don't have a big bucket of baking soda. And of course, I'm Googling, you know, what to do when, you're, when your kitchen is on fire. So eventually, Rafe, I called 911. At this point, flames are coming up through the vent of the stove and actually pouring out the top of the oven. Wow. And, um, the, we got the whole house evacuated. The the smoke filled up our entire house. And um, thankfully, thank God, the Elburn Countryside Fire Department District was able to, to come over. And I mean, we had, there was like, like a fire truck, an ambulance, a fire SUV was there. Whole crew of people came in. Um, and, and guess what? You know what happened? The fire just put itself out. They didn't even have to do anything. You know, my favorite part about this story is that you got a like while telling this story. 
<laughs> What's wrong with you people? Oh man, Joel, that's what happens when we're in the kitchen. You know what? I, uh, you know I what had a bad, a bad kitchen day the other day as well. My my upstairs neighbor, who's an amazing cook, he watched me trying to cook a meal for my wife on date night, and uh, it did not go. <laughs> it did not. It's the thought that counts, Joel. It's, it's the, the thought, thought and the counts. effort. That's right. Right. You know, at the end of all this, Elisa goes to me. She goes, "I told you we should should have just made eggs." I said, okay, well, basically, fair, fair point. Story of our life. Fair point. That's right. So, um, so brother, today we we've got a couple of questions, and you have not seen these questions, or no? Have you have you seen them? Because I sent them over to you, but I don't know. We didn't really we didn't talk about the. Questions. I I may have glanced at them a, a while ago, but I, I'm, these are going to hit me fresh. Okay, so we got these questions from um, from a woman. We'll call her AS. She sent them in via email. And she's a, a friend of the show, a friend of the Think Institute ministry. And, um, you know, the questions are, I think, very excellent, Rafe. And they're they're probably on more people's minds than, um, than we realize. I've gotten questions like this over the years, and I think it'll be good if we create, you know, what I'm hoping is that this episode can create a resource for people to reference back to, or even for us to reference next time somebody asks us a question, you know, related to, to these topics. So let me pull up the first one here. And, um, if you're watching live, I'm going to be posting the question on the screen. If you're listening later via audio, thank you for listening. And, um, uh, you're going to have to just listen carefully, but we're going to dissect the question. Now, if you are watching live, then, you actually have the opportunity to, to post more questions. And, you know, Rafe and I will oftentimes answer questions while we're recording. So go ahead and post a question and we'll try to get to it live. But here's the first question. Okay, now it's it's covering our faces here. So I'll probably take it down in just a minute. But here's what it says. Question, this is from AS. Okay, we Christians will champion pro-life traditional view of marriage. One man, one woman. Gender definition equals biological sex. But then unbelievers will think that we try to force our beliefs into the public space slash law. So in a way, Christians are accused of trying to combine religion and state. So are we in a way trying to do so? Okay, so the question really here is, look, Christians are advocating for biblical definitions and we get accused of trying to mix uh, church and state or religion and state. Is that what we're trying to do? Is that a valid criticism of Christians? Should we embrace that? Or is there an explanation for why we're, we're not actually trying to do this? Um, what are your, what are your initial thoughts? Well, uh, uh, my brain immediately goes to a few different places. So first of all, and I'll maybe put that question up in the chat too, by the way, yeah, two, two quick responses and I'll, I'll maybe set you up to jump in there as well. First of all, is what we mean when, when you say merging church and state, I think in our country, we've kind of lost sight of what the concept of separation of church and state means and what it was designed to do. The concept is not that um, whatever your faith is, you're not allowed to bring it in the public square. The concept was just that from the government side, uh, they cannot demand uh, worship at a particular church or, or something like that, or a particular denomination as like the, uh, the official church of the state. So the separation of church and state has nothing to do with how individuals live out their faith meaningfully, practically, how we vote, how we, right. all, the idea is just simply that the, the state cannot dictate what you do when it comes to your faith. Now, uh, in terms of, uh, is it, are we bringing our faith into the public space when we advocate for things like pro-life? Yeah, you better believe it. A hundred percent we are. And that's exactly what Christians are called to do. We are called to live out our faith in such a way that we're the salt of the earth. I mean, what right. does salt do? Salt goes in and, and it literally goes into the nooks and the crannies and it, it works its way all the way through and it preserves life. And the only way to do that is to work into every aspect of society. And so, yes, it, it, but it's I, the, the important thing is with that is we realize, and this is a, a very popular phrase that Joel and I will repeat on almost every episode of this show. There is no neutral, right? Right. We have our Christian faith rooted in the word of God. We're going to live our life upwards and outwards in the face of the community. And our desire, like if we're, if we're asking the question, what does best scenario society look like? Mm -hmm. The best society I can imagine and the one I want to build 
and they want to be a part of building is a society where people are Christians and they're worshiping Jesus. And, and, and society is ordered underneath the law of God and the rule of God. I mean, how much pain in society we've done away with if, if that's how everyone was thinking. And so I want to live my faith out knowing that if I fail to bring my Christian faith into the public space, someone else is going to bring their faith in the public space. Right. And that faith might be secularism. It might be atheism. It might be humanism. But those are not neutral standpoints. They're, they're also bringing their faith in the public square. And so if I don't say, no, 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 for my Christian values, life in the womb is a life in the womb. Well, someone else is going to say, well, for my humanist values, life right. in the womb is not a womb. Right. And so it's two different it's faith systems colliding. Mm -hmm. And if we bow out, then that one wins. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, that's a good point. Um, another thing that I would say too is establishing laws and governance based on a biblical worldview is not the same thing as a theocracy or some sort of religiocracy. What you just said, Rafe, was was right on the money. There's going to be some worldview by which the laws of a society are instituted. That's unavoidable. So, um, you know, uh, just as in the same way, let's say, um, you know, scientism, which is the, really, it's a worldview that it's sort of a, oftentimes a materialist worldview that says all the answers of life can come from science. Okay. It's a, not the same thing as science. Scientism is absolute faith in science. It's almost, it's essentially, it's a scientific religion or uh, um, a, a pseudo-scientific religion, or at least worldview. But let's say that uh, scientism gained hegemony in the society and all of the laws were based on the tenets of scientism. Would that be the same thing as scientists running the government? No, it wouldn't. It wouldn't. Um, it wouldn't be the same thing as, you know, the, the leading virologists and, and, uh, you know, um, uh, archeologists and, um, you know, biologists and physicists, physicists running the government. It would just be the tenants of scientism having hegemony, having, uh, power and ascendancy in a society now, in the same way a society or a state that is run on biblical principles would not be the same as a state that is run by clerics, pastors, church elders, pre uh, presbyters, or priests. It's not the same thing. And so um, in the marketplace of ideas, we live in a society, and, and God bless this society for having this attribute, they're having this, this um, characteristic. We live in a society where the best ideas are allowed to win, where ideas are able to compete with each other and they're able to win. So yeah. sometimes that takes place through a, a referendum. You know, California does a lot of referendums or propositions. Um, in Illinois, we just had a referendum on a, uh, a so-called fair tax, which was a progressive tax. And, um, and that was put directly to the people to vote on. Other times, the laws are put in place by uh, what we might call magistrates or representatives, or, you know, in different societies, you're going to have different, different um, people who enact the laws who legislate but those people are not blank slates operating off of neutrality like you said they are they, you might think of them as embodied bundled of bundles of worldview propositions they are people who are who are operating out of a worldview and who are going to enact laws based on that worldview and so when we say, look, we'd like our magistrates our representatives to be Christians and to operate out of the biblical worldview not to be hypocritical Christians, well, that's not the same thing as saying we need pastors to be running the government. So we need to get that very clear. That would be an illegitimate um, merging of church and state or religion and state. And the even even if you look in um, in the Old Testament, um, the priests were not were separate from the kings, and the prophets right. were distinct from the priests and the kings. Now, was there sometimes yeah. some overlap? Yes, uh, David was a prophet and a king. Moses had had a priestly role, although really that role went to Aaron. But Moses was an executive; he was so he was a king. He was a priest, and he had—I mean, he was a prophet, and he had—you know—he was a Levite. So there was some some um, uh, pre priestly duties there as well. But um, as Christians, we understand that the only authority who 
who truly holds all the functions of government and on, on all the spheres of authority is the Lord Jesus Christ. According to Isaiah, he's called everlasting father, meaning he's our, our uh, representative and, and um, he's not God the father, but you understand that there's a, there's a familial aspect to our relationship with Christ. He's our high priest. He's our king. There is no separation of powers within the Godhead or within the person of Jesus Christ, but he's the only one that holds all power. So the wisdom of our constitutional framers put in place a separation of powers and um, and also recognize different spheres of authority, even if they wouldn't have phrased it that way. Abraham Kuyper, who really coined that phrase, um, spheres of authority, he came around later. But as Americans, we recognize that there are separate spheres of authority. Now, this is a long-winded way of saying this. Anyone who would be concerned about the influx or the uh, infiltration of religious ideas into government or into the state needs to be very careful because one question that anyone could ask that person who's con uh, concerned would be, by what standard do you think that it's wrong for religious ideas to infiltrate into the state? And it's that old question, by what standard? Because as Christians, we understand ideas like total depravity of men, not, not wanting to give all authority to one mere mortal man or, or even a small cadre of individuals. That's a biblical idea. But if you take away the biblical worldview, what is stopping you from having some ideologue in government and investing that ideologue with all power? Because you've done away with the safeguards given to you by the biblical worldview. So the unbiblical worldview has no safeguard other than, you know, you might say, well, the Constitution guarantees that safeguard. But as, as you just put it, um, the Constitution does not mandate a separation of church and state. It does mandate a separation of powers within the government, but not a separation of church and state. That comes from other founding documents, the letters of Thomas Jefferson and things like that. But it, um, but once you do, once you do away with the biblical worldview that undergirds the ideology behind the Constitution, you've you've pulled away those safeguards. There's no stake in the ground holding the tent from being blown away by the winds of whoever's the most powerful. And all of this, hopefully, if I, if I can boil all this down here, what I'm getting at is this. The Bible is where we get the idea of separation of, of religion and um, civil authority from, civil but that's not, but that same Bible. So in other words, if you like that, you should love the Bible and you should love biblical ideas being involved in government. If you take that away, you're opening yourself up to a world of pain because you do not want someone to come along and try to run the government without the biblical worldview, uh, undergirding his or her, um, methodologies and, and actions. And, um, uh, let, let's let, let's put it this way. We we want there to be a healthy marketplace of ideas where the best ideas can rise to the top. As a Christian, I believe the best ideas are the biblical ideas. We want to allow a free marketplace of ideas. But even that, again, comes from out of the biblical worldview. So you're already kind of granting our point the minute you you uh, agree to that. So I, I agree with you, Rafe. I think, yes, we're trying to impose our, our, our worldview because our worldview is best. It's not our worldview. We didn't invent it, really. It's, it comes from God. You agree or disagree? You know, it's so there are so many points along the way that I totally agree with. I mean, it's, it, going back to the Old Testament as well, it's really interesting. Some of the few times where church and state got unfortunately mixed, I'm thinking of when Saul made sacrifices. Right yeah. uh, those were majorly condemned moments um, because there was a separation. There was the king, then there were the priests, and they had different functions. They weren't supposed to have the exact same function. Uh, and uh, I was actually just reading about that this week. And so, uh, yeah, I agree with you totally. And I think with this, we always just got to remember, I think the fear of stepping out into the public space uh, is not a biblical thing. Our faith is meant to be lived verbally, physically, emotionally in the eyes of a watching world. Uh, that's where our faith is most, uh, right. most opportunistic in terms of helping other people find Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. So when you live your faith out, when you vote according to what your belief system is, when you talk to people and assume you're standing on the biblical worldview, you are giving a testimony to the Lord Jesus Christ in your life. And that's what we want to equip people to do. So everything you said, Joel, it was great. Yeah, I know that's good. And even, even if let's say you vote or, or you really push for a neutral public square or a neutral, um, you know, sort of a secular government, not that that's secularism is not neutral, but let's say that you thought that way, understand that even at that point, you're pushing a, a worldview, right? 
you are, you are pushing a worldview at that point. So you can't get away from the idea of pushing a worldview. Might as well put the biblical worldview. It's the one, it's the one that's true. It's the one that's going to lead to the greatest amount of human well-being. So, right. um, you know, might as well, might as well do that. All right. Uh, any other thoughts? You're ready to, you're ready to do this thing. Go on to the second question. No, next one. Your face is paused in a pensive uh, look. Okay, good. Now you're back. Oh, now you're muted. Hold on. I got you. Wait a minute. I, I have this way of like totally freezing, so it looks like I'm I'm actually frozen. That's good. It's, it's this thing I do sometimes. It's um. It's a it's it's a it's a thoughtful yeah thoughtful look. All right. So uh, let's get on to the next one here. And um, by the way, if you're watching live, feel free to to ask any questions along the way because um you might have a little time to to answer a few more all right next question man these this is a good one okay question two this is also from as again friend of the show friend of the ministry as if you're watching thank you for watching thank you for your questions question two how do we usually communicate these pro-life how do we usually communicate these um, pro-life, definition of marriage, definition of gender, these ideas to unbelievers. Christians' definition comes from the Bible, but there's no way unbelievers would want to start there. They'll say that they don't believe in the biblical authority, etc. Or is this the only way? For example, maybe we need to build genuine friendships or relationships first. Then Hopefully, and by God's grace, they'll open up to Christianity and they'll accept God's definitions on those issues. So again, to kind of put this one into a nutshell, Rafe, it sounds like AS is asking this. We've got our ideas and they're biblical ideas, but how do we communicate them to someone who doesn't believe in the authority of the Bible? All right. So mm-hmm. what do you think? You want me to go first again or you want to go first this time? Well, yeah, yeah. Why don't I why don't I lead with a few thoughts? And- why don't you go first and I'll jump in? Okay. All right. So let me um you know what I'm gonna do? I'm gonna put up a banner here to get this out of our faces here. If you're if you're listening uh, in the live video right now, the comment is taking up so how do we communicate biblical ideas and definitions? I'm gonna say communicate and defend uh, to people who don't believe the Bible. Okay. I think that's pretty good. All right. So let's talk about it. Um, you know, Rafe, you and I both subscribe to presuppositional apologetics. And when I teach presuppositional apologetics, there's a number of verses that I appeal to. One of them is Romans 1, 19 through 20, which essentially says that all people already know God and suppress the truth, according to Romans 1.18. The believer's attitude towards God is not neutral. And if he or she, to the extent that he or she is living in rebellion against God, the Bible calls a person like that foolish or a fool. It's not an insult on his or her intellectual capabilities. It's instead a statement about their moral, um, moral status before God. If the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, then rejecting God is Foolish, it makes you a fool. It kind of makes sense. And Psalm 14.1 says that the fool says in his heart, there is no God. So Proverbs 1.7, Proverbs 9.10 says the beginning of wisdom and knowledge is the fear of the Lord, but the fool says in his heart, there is no God. So the first thing that you have to understand when you're speaking to a non-believer, someone who denies the biblical authority is this. This person is not neutral. They don't actually have a good epistemological reason for rejecting the claims, the knowledge claims, the truth claims of the Bible. Now, they might think that they do. They might not know what the Bible says. They might not know some of the best arguments for believing in the Bible. They might not know that it's the God of the Bible who alone provides a basis for the very laws of logic and language that they're using to make their arguments. But nevertheless, whether they're conscious of it or not, this person is operating in God's world by God's rules, and yet at the same time, they are rejecting God as the standard, and they're rejecting God's word as the standard of truth. So you have to understand that when you're dealing with non-believers, does that mean we mock them for this or ridicule them or anything like that? Of course not. Far from it. We need to approach the unbeliever in love, but we also need to approach the 
um, the unbeliever, according to first Peter three, 15 through 17 with gentleness and with reverence, reverence and respect towards the unbeliever, but reverence and respect towards God, understanding that God's word is true. So the person that you're, you're talking to is living in God's word and God, God's world and God's word is objectively true for the person you're speaking with for a discussion partner, even if he or she denies it. That's the first principle you have to understand. Second principle is there is no neutrality. The third principle, um, I would say is, um, is this, if your ultimate goal here is not to lead the unbeliever simply to a traditional definition of marriage. Your goal is to lead the person to saving faith in Jesus Christ. Now, once that happens, yeah, biblical definition of marriage and gender, all these things, these are going to follow, okay? But our goal is to lead this person to Christ. So we've got to keep these things in our minds as we're talking with the uh, with the unbeliever. We've got to commit to our biblical worldview, commit to the gospel, understand there's no neutrality. And then I would say, ask a lot of questions. Why don't you believe in the authority of the Bible? Um, was there ever a time when you did, you consider yourself religious or spiritual at all? And as the person is speaking, look for arbitrariness. All right. Um, the, uh, questions two, eight, I believe warned you against being taken captive by man-made philosophy and, uh, and arguments. And we need to watch out for arbitrary arguments as we're speaking to this person. So this is, this is sort of a groundwork. And I, I think what we could do now, Rafe, is we could sort of lay out a presuppositional approach for explaining to our unbelieving friend or discussion partner why we trust the Bible, and then introducing a biblical concept like the definition of marriage, the definition of gender, things like that. Um, to our unbelieving friend, you know, with these things. So what I what I what I hope I've just done is I've laid down sort of a mentality for approaching. But now, what would some of our actual arguments be? What would be some of the things we would actually say to our non-believing discussion partner? And oh, you're muted again. Yeah, that's all really good. Um, let me add just a couple more things before yeah. we jump into that. So. <laughs> I, I, I want to be careful here because, yes, when we talk about apologetics and defending your faith, uh, I, I am with Joel. We ascribe to a presuppositional approach, and I think that's very right. And I, we can show you, we will show you and talk about how to do that well. That doesn't mean that you throw out relationships and that you use your apologetics as a battering ram to beat people down. <laughs> right. uh, I, I think that the Christian faith is full of relationship, of love, of service of other people. All of those things... Right in in First Peter three fifteen, where it says, "In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to give a defense for the hope that's within you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect." Right. So we we start with this inward life of transformation. This is apologetics. You begin with an inward life of transformation, love in Christ. Honor the Lord as holy, and then be prepared to give a defense. And when you do it, you do it with gentleness and respect. Um, and so. What I would say is yes, relationships are key. But at the same time, one of the mistakes people make is they they think that if they just give a relationship enough time, eventually that'll come around to a meaningful conversation on Jesus. Right. And what I would say is more often than not, I don't see that happening. Um, I, I, and people usually then are really afraid to ruin a very long lasting relationship because they didn't really reveal the whole part of them in your relationships, bring your full self into them. If you're a Christian, like don't hide that part from your friends. Like if anything, let people know you're follow Christ. Like questions come up, you bring stuff up. I mean, it comes up all the time. So, anyways, I just want to don't want to lose that relational edge of it. That's very important in most of our relationships. Um, when it comes to apologetics, the other thing too, there's a great picture of this. Um, Cornelius Van Til writes about this a lot in his book, The Defense of the Faith. He's kind of the godfather of presuppositional apologetics, and he says when you're when you are uh, debating with somebody or you're talking about uh, faith, right? You have to imagine they're in a car, and the illustration he uses says their car is headed over a cliff, right? If they stay in their worldview and they do not receive Jesus as Lord and Savior, that car will head off a cliff. Now, you have a couple options. How are we going to go about getting this person to not drive off a cliff, right? That's the work of apologetics. I want to convince them the current direction they're headed is going off a cliff. Well, one method could be to get in the car with them, <laughs> right? Get in the car with them. And live in their worldview and just kind of like coast, right? The, the cliff's coming up and you just kind of like, 
just coast, coast. It's going off the cliff. It's going off the cliff. It's going off the cliff. And then at the last second, you go, I, I should have told you this a long time ago, but you're going off a cliff. Right. Right. That's a picture of going into someone else's worldview, adopting their foundation and trying to convince them out of their own worldview. It's already going off the cliff. It, there's nothing, it, it's never going to get at truth. As opposed to the better solution, the biblical model is you stand in front of the car and you wave your hands like this and you say, stop the car, turn it around, go in a different direction. That's what I would aim for. We want to get right out in front and we want to expose what's wrong with the direction their entire car is going and show them there's a different way. Okay. So what Cornelius Van Til calls that create head on collisions. Hmm. You want to, you want to create head on collisions. You don't want to jump in the car and just go with them for a while. You want to stop it before they go any further because of love for the person. Yeah. Make sense so far. Yeah. And you know what? I'm glad you mentioned the relational piece ahead of time because all this talk about head on collisions. And I know you and I have used that language before. I love that language, but that could sound like um, an antagonistic relationship. But in reality, we don't want to antagonize. We're right. doing this. And for the same reason, um, a, a surgeon plunges a, a sharp knife into a patient. It's not to kill. It's actually to heal. And so right. um, it, it could sound violent. It could sound antagonistic. But in reality, our goal is the the healing and the salvation of the patient of our friend yeah. so yeah i think that's good i think that's important yeah and so then then the question is uh what are some examples so maybe we can start with i'll i'll, I'll take a stab at the easiest one of what i think is uh the simplest discussion starter when it comes to presuppositional apologetics and that yeah, that's is good yeah you you take the easy one that, that's good and then i'll take the well i guess i'll take the hard one that, that's well great. you're smarter than me so i usually well, go that route no <laughs> <laughs> I would. I listen. I I lit my kitchen on fire this morning. So today's events don't uh, corroborate what you're saying. My favorite part about that moment is it took you about two seconds to try to find a way to to say that's not true, which which shows me that you know you know the <laughs> truth. You you're well aware of the varying not, IQs. No, listen, listen, Rafe. When someone when someone um, what I've learned is <laughs> so so I, I'm going to give you a quick. A, a quick uh, uh, window into my my messed up mind. So, the years ago when I was just starting out in pastoral ministry, um, I, I would always try to be very self deprecating, and um, and that works. Like my dad is very self deprecating. If you ever get to meet him, he's very self deprecating, and for him it works. It's it's funny. It's endearing. It's like oh, you know, this is this is Jimmy. This is how he is, and 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 people compliment him, and it's great. It totally works for his personality. Me. When I when I try to do the self-deprecating thing, uh, people people are like they're like, man, what a doofus! Like, why are you acting like that? Like, stop! I just it's just it sounds sad and pathetic. So so I've tried to do the self-deprecating thing in the past. I look like an idiot when I do it. I can't do it. Maybe that's because my ego, Rafe. Maybe that's because my ego is so big that like. No one believes it when I do it. I don't know. Maybe I have a major pride issue. That's probably true. No, but, I was but, kidding. But 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 I'll just say when people compliment me, okay, hey, your words, not mine. That's great. Keep it coming. Now I just say keep it coming. That sounds good. Yeah, that's right. More compliments. All right. Anyway, carry on with uh, with what you're All saying. All right. Let's get let's get back to this. So uh, I think one of the easiest conversations to do this on is with the topic of morality as a whole. And one of the reasons this is helpful is. Uh, in, in talking to neighbors and talking to friends, if you're doing cold turkey evangelism, you can, you can get down to morality and the question of how we establish morality and right and wrong from a thousand different talking points. Anytime you're talking about something that is right or wrong, you name it. I mean, we, you, you can, you, this, the conversation can start with the definition of marriage. It could start with abortion. It could start with, um, uh, immigration policy. It could, it could, it literally, you could start this on a thousand different places, but if you boil it down beyond the actual issue is a question of what is right and wrong and how are we determining what is right and wrong? And there's a number of different ways to attempt to determine right and wrong. If you, if you do a brief survey of philosophy, philosophers have been asking that question for so long. How do we determine what is right and wrong? But the reality is just a logical approach to this. If you are not grounded in the word of God, in a God who declares by his law what is right and what is wrong, then you are ungrounded and you have no definition of what is right and wrong. So there's only one of two options. Either 
you're grounded in God's word. That is a clear definition of what is right and wrong. Or you're not grounded in God's word and you have no clear definition. And if you're not grounded, if you're in that second camp and you have no clear definition, then your definition of right and wrong is whatever you say it is. And, and, and no one has any right whatsoever to disagree with you. You might, in your, in your mind, and this is the work of presuppositional apologetics, helping them see the, the flaws and the fallacies in their own worldview. So let's say I'm having a conversation with this person, and, they, and I, what I would do is I would say, okay, let's, let's take something that we, we both would agree is wrong, right? So let's take something like um, stealing, okay? Is it wrong to steal? Yes, it's wrong to steal. Is is pedophilia wrong? Yes, pedophilia. You can list any number of things. Is, is this wrong, right? How do they know it's wrong? Well, if they're not in the Word of God and they, they trace that down to why do I say it? Well, it's wrong because it's yucky. I don't I don't think we should do it. I don't think people are. Uh, it's not how we treat each other. It's it's doing harm to somebody. Yeah. Now, as a Christian looking back at them, and I can say, well, what if someone disagrees with you? What if someone else? who equally like you is not rooted on any foundation of right and wrong. They're making their own mind up and they decide that that very thing you just said that is wrong is actually right. Which by the way, there, you will always be able to find people like that. So I'll, I'll throw out the pedophilia one, right? You will always be able to find people who are in some camp saying, no, actually that's a good thing. We should pursue it. I mean, if you go back in history, it was pedophilia was a part of culture in the, the early Greek culture. That was a normal thing. So who are we to look back on that culture and say it was wrong? Right. Well, if you are in camp two, you're nobody. You can't say it. Right. The best you can say is, I don't like it. I don't agree with it, but I have to let them do it. It's yep. the Christian who actually has foundation to say, wait a second. No, it's wrong because God has spoken that it's wrong. And, right. and I'm not content with just saying, because here's the thing. That person is not content. Truly, if you ask them, they, you push on it. They're not content with saying, it's okay. I'll, I'll let them do it. Right. Right? That's right. It wouldn't well, live in a real yeah. world where they say, they might say it in the moment, but if you push and you say you really want to live in a world, you you think that's good for pedophilia to exist in the world, and that's that's the society you want to build, and we and we should have no laws judging pedophilia, and it's it's a free for all. They'd say no, no, it's wrong. No, you don't get to say that's wrong. Right. Why do you get to say I get to say that's wrong because I have the word of God. Right. So on the topic of morality, that's generally a, a framework for that conversation. You you expose based on their own worldview why it doesn't connect, why they're not living in re, in light of their own worldview, and right. then you show that the world they actually want to live on is better founded on your worldview. That's kind of the approach I tend to take. Joel, yeah. me. What do you think? No, 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 no. L listen, listen. That's good. The one thing that I wouldn't do that you mentioned, I wouldn't start with something that we both agree is wrong. I, but I, as I was listening to to you explain it, and the, the reason why, the reason why is because that's an approach that's taken by more of your classical apologists and things like that. I don't see it as being a, a purely presuppositional approach. Um, rather, I prefer to take. And, and I could see your approach leading into like a jump off point into what I'm talking about. But I would prefer to go to morality in general as a concept. Because look, um, there might be, I could imagine, well, I couldn't imagine, but hypothetically, logically, there could be a discussion partner that you are speaking with where you don't agree on anything. I mean, you're, you're literally, you're completely polar opposites. And so you go, well, what about pedophilia? And they go, well, no, I think that's fine. What about stealing? No, I think under certain circumstances, that's, that's okay. And, and you're like, well, well, what if I, what if I, you know, punch you in the face right now? Well, I could see maybe you have a good reason for it, you know? Okay. So do you believe that anything is right or wrong at all? Is there, is there any kind of morality, you know, whatsoever? Would it be wrong for me, you know, to, and, you know, Rafe, as I'm, as I'm going here, I'm realizing, um, I guess I guess what you could say is you know maybe maybe I do approach a little better because uh, better than I thought because the fact of the matter is everybody is operating with some kind of moral scheme right everybody's got something everybody's got something now I guess I guess where I would still take issue with it would be well you, you're telling me that I'm trying to find common ground with the person I think you're uh, yes yes. Yes, but I, I don't I don't think you're doing it in a in a neutral way, but I think a lot of people try to do that. They right. try to find neutral. What I was suggesting instead, rather than trying to find common ground, I'm 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 actually trying to exp I can already see in the person where they're borrowing from my worldview. And that's that's it. Yes. Right. Because and 
not necessarily common ground. My worldview. And now what I want to do is I want to show them. You may think that's your worldview. It's actually mine. That's it. I'm the one who gets to claim that. Yes, because. Because even if you and I or, or he and, and you disagree on what counts as moral, right. the very fact that there are standards whatsoever is a Christian idea. And right. even if, if we have to go, I mean, man, if we have to go all the way back, all the way back, and we're not even talking about, you know, specific examples of morality in action, we've got to get all the way down to the floorboards or, or, or to the joists below the floorboards. Those joists, that's a Vantillian uh, uh word picture as well uh-huh. those joists are christian joists that 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 you know you don't understand underneath the even the examples of moral actions or moral beliefs or moral principles the very fact that we agree that there is something moral to this universe at all that's christian that's biblical and so um just to really boil down the approach i talk about a three-step approach Step one, show the absurdity of the unbelieving worldview. Oh, okay. Look, here's what I'm saying is uh, what marriage is, okay? Let's talk about the unbiblical or an unbiblical definition of marriage. Let's talk about the absurdity of that. First of all, the fact that you have a standard at all is incoherent. Second of all, um, your standard is arbitrary. Why would you limit it to two people? Why not 10 people or 20? You see, there's no, there's, it's purely arbitrary why you limit it to two because you have no basis for a standard. And then, so we go through and what we say is, look, the unbiblical position here is actually arbitrary. It's actually inconsistent. It's actually, when you really boil that, boil it down, it's actually incoherent because right. you're saying there are no standards, but here's the standard. There's right. no objective basis for, okay, step, that's step one. Step two, show why the biblical worldview is actually coherent and makes sense. Why it answers the objection and gives um, gives a basis for even asking the objection in the first place. All right. So the God of the Bible is the the um, norming norm, as some say. The, the God of the Bible is um, is the the standard behind all other standards. Okay. So the fact that you want standards is good, but that's that's my worldview. But step three, here's step three. Okay. Step three is this: the very same God that says. That, that, that is necessary for there to be a moral standard and who gives us the standard of marriage is one man, one woman for life, biological man, biological woman for life, also condemns our attempts to redefine his word and, and, and live in the world by our rules. The Bible calls that lawlessness. The Bible says that sin is lawlessness and that unfortunately the wages of sin is death. God being perfectly just. Remember, God's perfect standard. God being perfectly just. What does a just judge do when he's faced with a criminal who stands condemned before him? He condemns that criminal, if it's a capital offense, to death. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death. The Bible also says that, thank God, he doesn't leave us there. The, the, The gift of God is eternal life. So, of course, that points up the question, am I on the side of death? Am I going to get what I deserve or am I going to get the gift I don't deserve? Well, the same Bible verse, Romans 6.23, that says the wages of sin is death and the free gift of God is eternal life, tells you where you can find that gift of eternal life, and that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Yes, Jesus is the Christ. He's the promised King and Savior, and he is our Lord. If you receive him as Lord and Savior, you believe he died on the cross for your sins, which is what the Bible says, you believe that he rose again and now reigns, and you surrender your life to him, turning from your sin, receiving him as Lord, Guess what? You'll receive God's free gift of eternal life. So the and 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 once you submit yourself to Jesus, all the other stuff falls into place. Now I think this is with AS's question. This is like like what she was asking. Remember, she was saying, Do you build up a relationship first and then hope that you know by God's grace these things start to make sense? I want to say yes. I think there is a good relational component here, but I think the more important relationship is between your friend and Christ. That's the relationship you want to foster. That's the relationship you want to introduce. Because when your friend becomes a Christian and and is introduced to Jesus Christ, the Savior and Lord, man, all that other stuff falls into place. There are things, Rafe, that I now believe about God and the way he works in the world and his rules that I love and I cherish that I never, ever, ever would have wanted to accept if I wasn't living for the Lord. Right. 
God's ways make much more sense when you understand, when you know him relationally. Yeah. So that's where this all has to be tied up with evangelism. We need to be praying. We need to be loving. We need to be caring and, and, and praying and sharing. All, all of those things have to be bound up with our, um, with our apologetic. So that's how I would approach it. I love that. Yeah, and I think one of the things that's super important here that you said very clearly, when we do apologetics, uh, it's very easy to get into apologetics and worldview and defense of the faith and be out to win an argument. And that's, it's good. I mean, we want to get after truth. We want to help people find truth. Um, but we need to get the gospel out. It's not just about convincing somebody that their worldview is broken and can't actually support it, that their life they, they want to live and they, they, should, they were designed to live. The, the more important thing is we, we want to get the gospel to them. And so in every conversation, we want to look for opportunities to, with clarity, give the, the fullness of the gospel of Jesus' death and resurrection for the forgiveness of sins. The best apologists, the people that I watch and I think, man, you're a master. It's not that. It's not that they know how to answer every question. You don't have you don't have to know everything that William Lane Craig knows <laughs> to go and talk to someone about faith and kind of do a worldview discussion with them. What you got to do, you have to have a, just a little bit of equipping, right? You got to yes, know your Bible. It helps to know your Bible. That's a good place to start and to honor the Lord is holy. But if you have a passion to share the love of Jesus with, with somebody during the conversation, bring that in. Bring in the word of God and and don't leave the conversation of I won the argument but lost the person, right? right? Get the gospel, get the get there at the end. And so, Joel, that was a good third point that you made there. Um, yeah, thanks, man. Um, so, so Rafe, I listen, I know you got to jump off, I know you got to yeah, go uh, you know, be a good dad. Um, I want to thank AS for her questions, and I want to, um, uh, I want to put up this Bible verse here and kind of close with this. And, um, and this is coming from second Timothy chapter two verses 24 and 25. This is one of those, oh man, great, great, great verses, which, um, which, uh, let's see, you know what? Uh, I was with my small group. My, I've got, a, I had a men's Bible study that I was a part of, um, and, uh, we memorized this. So I want to, I want to put this up. And you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to post it as a comment here. Um, and that way I can fit it all. And this is from 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 24 and 25. Okay, so if you're watching live, I just put it up in the comments here, and I'll put it on screen. Here's what it says. The Lord's servant must not quarrel, but must be gentle to everyone, able to teach, and patient, instructing his opponents with gentleness. Perhaps... God will grant them repentance, leading them to the knowledge of the truth. Now, this is wise counsel for pastors. Notice it says, um, you know, able to teach. That's one of the requirements for elders in the church, apt to teach. But this is also something for any follower of Jesus, especially those of us who want to use apologetics and evangelism to reach our neighbors and to make disciples, which really should be all of us, shouldn't it? Okay, so... We must not quarrel. We're not out to just destroy the person. Yes, we want to demolish arguments. We absolutely want to demolish arguments, and we know that from Scripture. But the um, the biblical, uh, and that's 2 Timothy 10.4, which says we demolish arguments. But we don't do it to quarrel and to destroy the person. We have to be gentle. We, we ought to teach with patience and with gentle instruction. We, you never know what God may do. God may very well lead this person to a saving knowledge and a saving faith in Jesus Christ. So that uh, that that about wraps it up. I mean, um, I think I only put my foot in my mouth about one time this episode, and um, you know, and I don't know if you noticed this, but I was able to be self-deprecating while talking about not uh, being self-deprecating. Um, so. Uh, Anyway, I always enjoy these conversations. Rafe is long gone, and I could keep uh, speaking here, but actually I'm going to go because I'm going to edit this, put this out on the podcast, and um, put this out for our audio listeners. So if you are just catching the tail end of this episode, you're watching it live on YouTube or um, Facebook, 
and you want to catch the rest of it, you can rewind this video or you can get this to go, so to speak, and listen to the the um, episode via your favorite podcast player app. Uh, all right. Also, I want to give a quick plug. Um, many of you are our ministry partners and you partner with us through prayer and financially. And I want to um, just thank you for that. Thank you for your partnership in the gospel. I really, really appreciate it. If you're interested in partnering with us, you can go to give.crew.org slash 101-8841. That is Alisa and my giving page. And that is how people partner with us financially. We are in search of new prayer and financial partners right now. We actually re rely on the support of like-minded individuals and friends and family and uh, churches. So if this is something that the Lord is putting on your heart, please listen to that and uh, prayerfully consider partnering with us. That actually keeps our ministry afloat and allows us to do some of the really exciting things that we're going to be doing in the near future. We're going to have another short run podcast coming out, Lord willing. We've got a, um, a uh, I'm, there's a webinar um, that I'm going to be doing later this week um, based out of the Philippines. There is a, the, the next round of the Hammer and Anvil Society is coming up. And then um, I've got some other things as well. So please continue to pray for us. Um, I'm going to be speaking at the Veritas homeschooling co-op, Veritas Academy in Chicago on Monday. And I'm going to be speaking on evangelism. Um, actually, I'll be teaching a lesson on the curriculum that I put together for homeschool co-ops, um, homeschool curricula, um, homeschool families. So please be for that. Consider making a contribution to our ministry. And um, whatever you do, Remember, this is not goodbye. This has just been a little pit stop along the way of your spiritual journey. I hope you heard something that was helpful to you. AS, thank you again for your questions. And you, remember, you can send any questions that you have to thethink.institute at gmail.com. Thethink.institute at gmail.com. Oh, also consider joining our Christian Culture Builders group on Facebook and on MeWe and um, following us on uh, on all the social media platforms. All right, without any further ado, without any further yakking from yours truly, that's about all we have for you today. So until next time, I hope it made you think. Mm -hmm.